Welcome to Mosaic, the EDC podcast. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity with EDC staff around the world. When disaster strikes, some communities crumble, while others pull together and pull through. The reason why? It's all about resilience, says EDC's Cornelia Yanka. In this podcast, Yanka draws upon her visits to conflict and crisis zones around the world to discuss what makes for a resilient society and why resilience is so critical to stability and security. Well, Cornelia, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to have you here. Hi, Bert. Pleasure to be here. So your work focuses on improving education for youth in conflict and crisis zones. Can you briefly describe what conflict and crisis zones are? Sure. So crisis zones could be anything from acute crisis zones, like places where natural disasters or health epidemics take place, to protracted crisis zones, which could include things like longer-term climate vulnerability or uh, lawlessness or gang activity or just very weak government function. Conflict is either acute or protracted as well. Acute conflict is when there is a a short armed conflict between government and other forces. And protracted is when that conflict is sort of intermittent and ongoing uh, and debilitating. And now what are some examples of conflict or crisis zones that, that may have been in the news recently? Sure. Uh, Sadly, there are a lot of them. Uh, I was just hearing on the news this morning a discussion about the Eastern uh, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, There is an active insurgency uh, that is going on there, has been going on there for many years. At the same time, uh, there is an active and growing Ebola epidemic. And uh, that example highlights, I think, something that's important to understand about a lot of these places, which is they're complex, and they're often, at one time, several things happening. There could be crisis and conflict happening at the same time. Another example uh, could be the Philippines. In the region of Mindanao is has been struggling with armed insurgency. Uh, at the same time, it's very vulnerable to climate shocks. Uh, if you move to a different part of the world, in Central America, for example, Honduras. Uh, Honduras struggles with ongoing lawlessness and criminal and gang activities. It's also very vulnerable to hurricanes and, in fact, hasn't recovered from uh, a devastating hurricane in 1998 um, that left a lot of infrastructure damage, which one can still see today. So I know that you visited some of these places as part of your work at EDC. What kind of impact does growing up in conflict and crisis zones have on young people? Yeah, I think probably a good and poignant example uh, would be drawn from my recent visits with middle school students in both El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, And uh, when we asked them what life was like living in a gang-affected community, it was really clear that the challenges they faced really were many. Here are, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids who are going through, you know, a very difficult time in life just for anybody um, as they transition into their teen years. But at the same time, they're dealing with an environment where they literally fear for their lives every time they set foot outside their door or outside the school. 
Um, most of these children and youth have witnessed violence, armed violence. Uh, many of these children and youth have lost family members to gang violence. Some of them actually have family members who are gang involved. It could be a brother, it could be a parent, it could be an uncle. If you're not gang involved uh, but targeted by gangs, you're living in constant fear if you're wearing the wrong clothes, if you say something you shouldn't, uh, if you cross over into a part of your town that is controlled by a rival gang. These are youth who see their teachers extorted by students in their class who may be gang involved themselves. And so they live in a constant state of fear. And that then exacerbates already difficult situations. Many of these youth are living with extended family uh, because their parents are not in country. They may have moved uh, trying to find safety or work. Um, some of these kids are being raised, raised by over older siblings or by grandparents, uh, and so they don't have a, a lot of support at home. So they're just, I think, you know, trying to grow and become adults in the most difficult situation I can imagine. And unfortunately, although that example is from Central America, I know that many other young people in other parts of the world would tell similar stories, which brings me to the topic of resilience. So increasingly, we're hearing about the importance of raising children who are resilient so that they can withstand some of the challenges that they may face in life. What does the concept of resilience mean in an international context, and why is it important in places where there is conflict and crisis? Yeah, so, you know, a, a technical definition of resilience is, is the ability to absorb, adapt, anticipate, and hopefully transform in response to shocks and adversity. And the interesting thing about that definition is that it applies equally well to individuals and to systems. Now, when people hear the word resilience, they most often just think about resilient individuals, and that's certainly important. But there's also broader resilience, and you could think about it at the systemic level as well. Think about ecological resilience, you know, when, when ecosystems bounce back from climate disasters, for example. In the same way, the term resilience is now being used to refer to social systems. And resilient social systems really have to do with both the presence of institutions at the community and the broader social level, and the, the functionality of those institutions and people's confidence that those institutions uh, will provide equitable and decent quality uh, support for things that they need. So uh, social institutions could include health clinics, it could include schools. Institutions might also be private sector, businesses, banks. And when a system is resilient, it means that those institutions function and people have access to them. And those institutions inspire a sense of trust from people. and reflect people's values back to them. So there has to be trust, there have to be shared values, and there have to be functional institutions that meet some of the basic needs that, that a society or people in a society have. So then as you look at current events, how do you see this idea of systemic resilience playing out in different communities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that no place 
is and no one is immune to adversity and shocks. Um, it's really resilience is really about how well you adapt and bounce back from those. So when we think about resilience in a crisis and conflict affected place, a lot of the connections between you know between individuals and institutions and among individuals themselves are very stressed. Uh, and uh, they can be easily challenged and sometimes broken by external shocks and stressors, whether that's a conflict, whether it's a climate disaster, or whether it's both of those things. So if we look, for example, recently uh, there were devastating fires in Paradise, California, that basically wiped out an entire town. And the reason that individuals in that town, even though they're struggling terribly, but the reason that things haven't cascaded even worse and broadened is because there were a number of institutions and systems inter, sort of interlocking institutions and systems that were able to be there for people as individuals and were able to help sort of mutually rebuild or begin to reweave a web that had been, you know, really devastated by fires. In contrast, if we look at, say, the Eastern DRC that I referred to earlier, what we're seeing there right now is uh, that it's been very difficult for the health authorities to get the Ebola outbreak under control. It's continuing to grow. And one of the things that has started to happen is that there have been attacks on health workers as they try to contain the Ebola outbreak. And the, the attacks are for two very, very different reasons, but both of these reasons are critically linked to this notion of resilience, or in that case, really a lack of resilience. And that is, many family members and community members are deeply, deeply distrustful of those health workers. They feel that Ebola is being perpetrated upon them, and they resent those health workers coming into their communities and, and dictating how people can be buried and taking their loved ones away. At the same time, there's an active insurgency there, which is taking um, advantage of the fact that uh, the Ebola outbreak has really weakened the response system on, on a, at a sort of security level. And so they're able to gain ground in places where people are distracted because they're trying to deal with an Ebola outbreak. Uh, that's an example where there isn't redundancy in the system and resilience is therefore very low. And I think that example just brings to the fore how important it is to build resilience and strong community institutions before disaster takes place. So how do you do that in communities and states that are experiencing conflict already? Well, I think the answer is that you work at many different levels. You work at an individual level trying to help uh, children, youth, parents, families develop social and emotional skills that will help them make decisions and make meaning of some of the challenges that they face. At the same time, you have to work with institutions. You have to help those institutions uh, offer the best quality service, whether that's health or clean water or education, whether that's a bank loan, whatever it might be. Um, you have to help those institutions be accessible to people, and people have to have confidence that those institutions are going to treat them fairly and that are going to offer support to everyone equally. All of those things are important. And finally, tell me about how your work is contributing to efforts to improve education in crisis and conflict zones. 
Well, my work right now is is uh, supporting a community of practice that is intended to improve the quality of education programming in these contexts throughout the world. Uh, and we do that by doing research, we do that by professional development, we do that by strengthening the ability of institutions in those environments. But I would say that work to build resilience isn't just something that one does in crisis and conflict-affected places. In fact, I would say that EDC has been in the business of building resilience for a very long time, both at the individual level and at the institutional level. Wherever there are individuals, wherever there are institutions, there is room to build resilience because it has to do with human potential, human capacity, and institutional potential, and institutional capacity. And in the fields of education and health, that's what EDC does. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about working here. Well, Cornelia, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about these important issues. I really enjoyed our talk. Thanks, Bert. It's been a pleasure. For more information about Yanka's work in crisis and conflict zones, or to learn more about EDC's international development efforts, visit us online at edc.org.